Our scripture reading this morning is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you've not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Brother, are you saved? <laughs> I wonder if you've ever been asked that question, or even if anybody asks that question in those exact words anymore. Kind of an old-fashioned sounding question. I googled the question, brother, are you saved, and saw a photograph of a street evangelist. It's kind of a scary looking character, actually. Looked like he hadn't trimmed his beard or his hair in 30 years. He carried a big Bible that looked more like a weapon than a book. Wore dark sunglasses and a t-shirt saying, Got Jesus? And the caption was, Brother, are you saved? And I wonder if he approached you on the street, what you would say. I hope you would be able to say yes, and not just in the hopes that he would go away, <laughs> but that you would be able to say a confident, simple, straightforward, uncompromised yes. By God's grace, I have received this incredible free gift of salvation. Salvation that is pictured in a variety of different ways in the Bible. Sometimes salvation is pictured as getting in the clear in God's courtroom, justification. Sometimes salvation is pictured as healing. Sometimes salvation is pictured as deliverance from the power of the evil one. Sometimes salvation is pictured as receiving eternal life. Sometimes salvation is pictured as entering the kingdom of God. But in all of these ways, and it is a wonderful package... It is something that we ought to be able to say yes, if asked. Yes, I'm saved. 
But I wonder if you realize that the Bible makes it possible, in fact, even preferable, to give a um, somewhat more nuanced answer, a, a more thorough answer to that straightforward question. The Bible would encourage us to answer the question, yes, I have been saved, yes, I am being saved, and yes, I will be saved. Because however you picture salvation, there is this already not yet aspect to it. A past, present, and future dimension to our salvation. And I don't know of any place in the Bible that brings the past, present, and future aspects of salvation together as concisely and profoundly as our text for this morning, this paragraph 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. We have it. Past tense. He has given it to us. So that if the street evangelist should ask you, brother, are you saved? Sister, are you saved? you don't have to say, well, I hope so, or I plan on being, or I think so, but can confidently say, I have by God's grace been born again. This is a gift that Peter says God has given to us. When you were born the first time, you were not automatically a child of God. You had to be born again. And uh, even if you don't remember when you were born again, you were, if you are a Christian, a Christ follower, born again. A lot of Christians cannot remember a specific moment in history, in time, in their childhood or youth when they crossed the line. They grew up in a Christian home where they knew nothing but loving God, trusting Jesus, and would be hard-pressed to put their finger on a specific moment. But even if that describes you, you can be sure that just as you don't remember your physical birth, and yet there's no doubt that you were born, and if you don't remember your spiritual birth, your new birth, if you are a child of God, you were born again. This is your possession. It's in the past. It has happened. It is a gift that God, Peter says, has given to us. I don't think I need to camp there much longer. I think that most of us, when we hear that question, are you saved, translate that mentally, automatically, by default, to mean, is this something that has happened to you? And Peter says, yes, there is this past dimension to our salvation. But according to our text, there's a sense in which you will be saved. Verse 5. Through faith, you're shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation. The coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the past time. However you may picture salvation in those different ways of expressing it that I mentioned a few moments ago, there is this already 
but not yet aspect. Is salvation a matter of deliverance from the power of the evil one? Yes. But Satan has not yet been thrown into the lake of fire. And according to the last chapter of this letter, he's a roaring lion roaming around looking for someone to gobble up. And he still harasses. He still devours. So, yes, we have been delivered from the dominion of darkness. We're no longer slaves of the evil one, but neither are we free yet from his influence. If you picture salvation as receiving eternal life, yes, it's a possession. You already have a gift. You have eternal life, and yet you're mortal. You're going to die unless Jesus comes first. Your body will die. But there's coming a day when death will die. Death will be no more. And, uh, and so there's that already, not yet, dimension to salvation as receiving eternal life. Um, if you picture eternal life as entering the kingdom of God, then yes, you are already citizens of the kingdom. And Peter is going to make that very clear. The reason that this series is entitled Resident Aliens is because Christians, though residing door-to-door, next-door to others who are not Christians, are not citizens primarily of this world, but citizens of the kingdom of God. And yet, Christ has not yet returned and brought down the curtain on history and ushered in the millennial kingdom and the eternal state, and so there is this already and not yet aspect of salvation. We're told that we have an inheritance, verse 4. Well, you may possess an inheritance in the sense of you know that you are in someone's will, But as Camp Zion is discovering, it's not the same as having it in the bank just yet. You and I are promised an inheritance in heaven, but we don't yet possess it. What wonderful news this must have been to Peter's first readers, who were mostly poor people. They were paupers. But he tells them they have an inheritance. Doesn't that word have a nice ring to it? Well, you you and I may not be materially impoverished as they were, but spiritually, apart from God's grace, we are paupers. But Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? We have an inheritance. Someday we will be unimaginably rich when the king comes again, and we enter into our inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade kept in heaven for us. We don't have to worry that our Father will write us out of his will or that moth and rust will deteriorate what we have to inherit or that the bad performance of the stock market will in any way diminish the value of what we are poised to inherit. And Peter continues in verse 5 that this inheritance, this salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. The last part of verse 5. It's ready to be revealed. 
God doesn't have to do anything else to get it ready. It's already ready. Jesus doesn't have to do anything else than what he's already done to secure our salvation. It's already ready. A theologian was asked one time, when and where were you saved? And I have a hunch that the question meant, can you tell us the place? Were you at church camp? Were you at your mother's knee? Were you at your bedside? Were you in Sunday school? And when was it? Was it when you were 6 years old or 14 years old or 35 years old? And here's how the theologian answered the question, when and where were you saved? I was saved on a hill outside Jerusalem on a Friday afternoon sometime between 30 and 33 AD. It's already ready. It's already accomplished. Just ready to be revealed. We don't know when in the last time, Peter says, and Jesus made it clear in his earthly ministry that nobody knows when that will be, not even he. But may it be soon. <laughs> may it be soon. Because when that inheritance comes and when we are saved in the future sense of the word, not only will we have what we do not yet possess, we will be what we are not yet. We'll be different. I'm not going to be the jerk that I'm sometimes capable of being. I'm not going to have to apologize for anything that I have done or said. I'm not going to have to hang my head in shame anymore. I'm not going to be the mess that I sometimes am. I'm going to be saved. <laughs> and may that be soon. Come, Lord Jesus. That's salvation. Brother, are you saved? Well, you ought to be able to say, yes, I've been saved. You ought to be able to say, praise God, yes, I'm going to be saved. And the rest of the paragraph goes on to say that there is a present dimension to salvation. Past and future, yeah, but there's also a present sense to the word salvation. And uh, it's worth rereading this paragraph. Follow in your Bible as I... Uh, read, beginning at verse 6, uh, in this, uh, what is this? It's the salvation that he's already been talking about. Past and future, in this salvation, you greatly rejoice, though now, present tense, for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These, verse 7, have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, present tense, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for, verse 9, you are receiving. Present tense, you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Present, being saved. And rather than work through this paragraph line by line, let me just give you three key words, three hooks to hang our thoughts on when we Think about the present aspect of salvation. Three key words in this paragraph. The first is the word faith. 
faith. Back in verse 5, which I didn't just read, it says, you through faith are shielded by God's power until the future aspect of salvation. In verse 7, your faith of greater worth than gold. Verse 8, you believe in him. Verse 9, you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Brothers and sisters, the present aspect of being saved is a matter of faith. It's not as though you begin the Christian life with faith and then leave and carry on with something else. It is faith all the way, faith every step of the way until you get to glory. We walk by faith, not by sight, trusting in the God who is in the process of saving us. Peter's first readers, like you and I, had not met Jesus personally in his earthly ministry like Peter had, but they believed the apostolic witness. They had faith. And Peter's first readers, like you and me, did not at the moment see Jesus with their physical eyesight, but they believed in him and rejoiced in him. It's a matter of faith, trust. Some years ago, I was at a conference for pastors, and um, I met and got to talking to a pastor from another part of the country who was going through an intense period of doubt. And he felt that it must have been a providential um, thing that we came together because um, he quickly learned that I had, 30, 40 years ago, gone through a period of intense personal doubt. Does that surprise you that pastors can have doubts well, sometimes they do. And this pastor was questioning everything, whether the Bible was true, whether he believed some of the harder doctrines of Scripture. He told me that despite this struggle, he was really enjoying the conference, the, the heartfelt, fervent worship, the genuine Christian fellowship, the, the solid preaching of God's word. And, and by the way, brothers and sisters, if you find yourself going through a period of doubt, let me tell you there is no substitute for heartfelt, fervent worship, authentic Christian fellowship, and solid biblical teaching. Don't go off in a corner by yourself and try to solve your doubt problems by reading books and journaling and just you and God having a conversation. Get with God's people in corporate worship and listen to the preaching of his word and fellowship with God's people and sing in worship even if you only half mean it and you'll discover that God has an antidote for doubt. This pastor told me that the evening before, he had called his wife on the phone and said, well, I think I'm still a Christian. You know, there is coming a time when there will be no more doubt, when we will not question our Lord. But right now, in this life, the Christian life, the experience of being saved, is a matter of faith and suffering. That's the other key word in this text. He says in this 
you greatly rejoice, verse 6, but now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Twelve times in this short letter, we're going to read about suffering. Proportionally, there's more about suffering in 1 Peter than any other book in the New Testament, given its length. Suffering was part of the experience of being saved for Peter's first readers. And it may be part of the experience of being saved for you and me. As you've heard me say in in recent years, I think it's going to be worse in the years to come than it has been for God's people in North America in the past. But it may very well be that for this current experience of being saved, suffering is going to play a part. Now, we're not going to look today at those other occurrences of the word. In the weeks to come, we'll see how Jesus suffered and how his suffering is meant to be an example for us and how we suffer and how to handle unjust suffering. But for now, just note what this paragraph says on the subject. Suffering tests the genuineness of our faith. Verse 7, these, all kinds of trials, verse 6, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine. Suffering God uses to test, to verify, to prove the genuineness of our faith. I read a book about Colorado and the early days and a miner in the 18th century or maybe early 1800s, I should say, was really disgusted and frustrated and discouraged. He'd heard there was gold in then their hills, but he hadn't found any yet. And so one night, all by himself, by the campfire, in anger, he took a rock and he threw it into the fire. And then, after a little while, to his surprise, he saw gold melting out of that rock. The fire tested the authenticity of the ore, the hunk of ore. Peter knows this. He says that the fires of adversity test the authenticity of our faith. Is it real? A businessman was talking to a colleague at work about the gospel and his faith, and she said to him, you know, Ian, when I was 22... I was in a terrible car accident. My fiancé was killed. I survived, obviously, but I had to have multiple surgeries. I'm okay now, but one result was I lost my faith. Now, what do you say to somebody like that? Well, Ian breathed a silent prayer that God would give him wisdom and then said to her, and he hoped kindly, You know, when they tested the constructed Queen Mary and Queen Elizabeth, they didn't test those ships in dry dock. They didn't hose them down to see if they would leak. They took them out to sea for a sea test. And sometimes 
when uh, we're talking about faith, the only way it can be tested is to get out there in the seas of life, out there where it's rough, and find out if it's genuine. And then he said, is it possible that you didn't lose your faith, but that you didn't have a faith in the first place? And she said, you're right. Looking back on it, I realize that I, I probably did not have a faith in the first place. Well, adversity, suffering, will sometimes bring that reality and make it more clearer. I haven't always been able to say this, and there may come times in my life in the future when I won't be able to say it and really mean it, but right now I can tell you sincerely, I thank God for testing my faith through hardship. I've gone through doubt. I've uh, experienced grief. I'm still in grieving. A friend of 50 years and more died this week, and it's hitting me harder than I expected. I've experienced a, a little minor persecution, have a few battle scars to show. And I can tell you, and I mean this, my faith is the real deal. I don't mean that it's a great faith or that it's an exemplary faith, but I know it's real because it has survived. And if the devil comes to me and says, Ken, you are such a lousy specimen of a Christian, your faith can't be real, I can say to him, man, you, you may have fooled me 40 years ago with that line, but I have been through some suffering and my faith is real. And I trust that it will be so for you if God in his providence includes suffering as part of the experience of being saved. Not only does the fire test the genuineness of faith, it purifies faith. It's of greater worth than gold, Paul says, or Peter says, even though it's refined by fire. When the goldsmith puts gold in the crucible and heats it up, the impurities come to the top. And he scrapes them off, and what's left is purer gold. Well, brothers and sisters, when God applies the fires of adversity to you, he's refining you not only testing the genuineness of your faith, but refining your faith. Right now, he looks at you and me and he sees a mix. Faith in him and trust in our own strength. Faith in the gospel and trust in our own righteousness. God is not content with that mix. He wants 24-carat faith. And he's going to get it out of you and me one way or the other. We might not like that very much. We don't like the flame. We wish there was a pain-free way to get purified. <laughs> Sorry. Ain't going to happen. Of all the dumb things that, that I've heard of in the last few decades, the dumbest invention might be spray-on mud. Have you heard of this? You can actually buy spray-on mud for your SUV. 
because these big gas guzzlers were meant to go off-road in the wilderness, and there ain't a whole lot of wilderness in Chicago or London where this thing was invented. So if you want to look like you've been out there, you can buy a can of spray-on mud. Fake authenticity. <laughs> now, we laugh, but let's be honest. Wouldn't we like some pain-free, spray-on, authentic spirituality that makes it look like we have battle scars, makes it look like we have suffered with Christ? Well, suffering's got to be the real deal. But, lastly, suffering does not negate joy. That's the other key word in this paragraph that characterizes the present aspect of being saved. Verse 6, in this you rejoice. In verse 8, you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. In the shower, an old gospel song came to mind. I'm not going to ask you if you've heard of it because you would have to reveal your age. Based on the King James translation of this verse, there is joy unspeakable and full of glory. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. It's unspeakable, inexpressible. If you were pressed to ask, well, what is this joy like? You might go, well, it's kind of like Well, it's sort of, you can't put it into words because it's not like anything else. It's not joy that's dependent on circumstances because your circumstances at the time might suck. It isn't the kind of joy that, that is so common in the world. It is a joy that is, it's rooted in belonging to God, having an inheritance, possessing salvation, looking forward to the future aspect of salvation, you, and suffering doesn't cancel it out. As Margaret could teach us, Margaret had multiple sclerosis and so was confined to a wheelchair, her body contorted and twisted. She could hardly speak. When she did attempt to speak, it was usually in inarticulate grunts and moans. Margaret loved Jesus. She loved the church. She loved the word of God. Every time her church was open, she was there. Sunday morning, Sunday night, midweek prayer meeting, any Bible study opportunity that the church offered, always there in a neatly pressed dress in her wheelchair. One time she was in a Bible study group where the leader had asked the group to tell their favorite Bible verse. Do you have a favorite Bible verse? And he was writing them on a flip chart up front and then Margaret let it be known that she had a Bible verse that she'd like to share. Well, most of the group had recited or read their favorite verse. Margaret couldn't speak, so the group leader, with her guidance, opened to her favorite verse, and he read Psalm 119.71. It was good for me to be afflicted that I might understand your word. When he read it, she beamed and nodded. <laughs> that's, that's joy unspeakable and full of glory. Brother, are you saved? Yes? 
I've been saved. Yes, I'm going to be saved. And praise God, be patient with me. He's not finished with me yet. I'm still being saved. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this glorious gospel. Thank you for all that you have done to make ready the salvation that will be revealed in the last time. There's so much more in this rich paragraph. We're going to return to it, if you are willing, later in this series and unpack some more about the hope that we have in Christ. But for now, we just say thank you. Thank you so much that you've saved us. You're saving us and you will save us. We want to honor you in time and eternity for this great gift. Help us to do so in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake and let all his people say, Amen.